to the message for today. We are back in the book of James, James chapter 1. We spent three or four Sundays just on verses 2 through 8. And I think prior to that, we spent three weeks <laughs> just on the introduction. All right. So you should have read the book of James at least six or seven times now. All right. I'm not going to ask anyone if they have. All right. But remember... Our goal is to read the book of James 20 times, okay? And if you read the book of James 20 times, you will have a good understanding of what the book of James is all about. Amen? Amen. So um, keep working your way through that. Again, it's only five chapters in the book of James, right? You could probably sit down and read all five chapters in 15 minutes, all right? So... Today, we are going to move on. We're going to skip verses 9 through 11. I think chap uh, verses 9 through 11 um, go with verses 2 through 8. Um, and it's just um, uh, like a case study, so to speak, on um, how to handle trials or adversity. I'm going to skip those three verses and instead start at verse 12 today. <coughs> and as I said, looking at verses 12 through 15, I want to use the topic, how to handle temptation. How to handle temptation. And there's a lot here. I know I won't be able to finish all of these three verses this week, um, but I promise you I'll only be here for two weeks um, unless y'all give me some calls during the week and I have to add on. <laughs> but let's look at these three verses. They read, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us again to come and to hear what James has to say about genuine faith. Lord, there is a lot of information in these four verses, but I pray that you would help us uh, to slow down and think through what James is telling us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear from your word. I pray that you would, would touch each one of our hearts by your spirit. And I pray that this word would live in our lives. Help us to see that faith is not, not just about getting saved. It's not about having our needs met. 
But even in the midst of temptation and sin, faith is what we need in order to endure. We thank you now for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently in the news, uh, there has been many stories about the persecution of Christians in China by the Chinese government. Officially, the Chinese government is atheistic, but it states that it is a country that values religious liberty. However, in February of 2018, China implemented new religious regulations that toughened up its restrictions on religious activities. Churches, clergy, and doctrine was already being regulated by the government. They had to be approved by the government. But now, in addition to that, these new regulations will also include prohibitions against sharing your faith in public, publishing religious materials without approval, accepting donations without approval, and renting space to an unregistered church. Now, there are an estimated 100 million Christians in China, and most of them go to what we call underground churches, churches that have not officially registered with the government because they don't want their messages being regulated and needing to be approved by the government. Okay. Over the past year, <coughs> past few years actually, um, China has been raiding churches, shutting down youth Bible camps and Sunday schools and Christian schools. They have been forcibly removing crosses from churches, and they have sealed the entrances to churches that have refused to register and install cameras so the government can monitor what they're doing in church. Members have been arrested and forced to turn over their phones. They have been followed from church and to and from work, and they have even had their homes raided, all because they attend these unregistered churches. Prior to Christmas, this past Christmas in, um, of 2018, uh, China began a crackdown on Christians. And right before Christmas, hundreds of Christians were arrested and put in jail. There's one article that I read uh, that was dated in October of 2017, just prior to the ban uh, beginning. Uh, and it talked about a, a pastor, her daughter, and her gra three-year-old grandson who had been arrested for simply singing, dancing, and preaching in a public park. And by the time the article was written in October of 2017, their whereabouts were still unknown. Now, imagine that this is our reality. Imagine that here in the United States, the government passes a law that states that Christians cannot attend churches where the clergy has not had their messages approved by the government. Now, 
we think that's kind of far-fetched, but you all remember in Texas just a year or so ago, this actually happened. Okay, they, they passed, the city council passed a law, I believe it was Houston, saying that pastors had to turn their sermons into the city council to be reviewed to make sure that there was nothing offensive to homosexuals. Okay, okay. Um, but let's not go there today. Okay. But let's just imagine that, that this happens, you know, nationwide. The government says you cannot attend church unless your pastor has his messages approved by the government. And at any moment, because you choose to go to such a church, you are subject to be being arrested, followed, harassed, or having your homes raided. What if in addition to being followed and arrested by the police, the U.S. government adopted the same practices as China and stopped all government services like Medicare, Social Security, and any other government service for anyone who attends an unregistered church? Would you endure the trial or would you give up? Would you trade your faith for your social security check? I work for that. Okay. Would you continue to openly be a follower of Jesus? Would you become a secret follower of Jesus, or would you walk away entirely? This is what is being presented to the church in China. Now, I know this is hypothetical. It's hard to imagine because presumably this will never happen in America. Okay. Or at least what we will think is that it'll never happen in America in our lifetime. Okay. But so many things can change in such a quick time, right? But putting that type of persecution aside, what about the normal trials that we face each and every day? What about marriages that end in divorce? What about babies who die in infancy? What about losing a sibling to a drunk driver or being furloughed and not being able to go to work or having to go to work and not get paid because the government is shut down? In all of these trials that we face each and every day, we are tempted to doubt God and walk away from him. The question is, will you endure. All of these trials are simply a test of our faith. And over the past few Sundays, we have looked at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and we have learned the purpose of trials and how to handle trials that come into our lives. But I don't know about you. Sometimes I don't always follow up with and be obedient to what I know. Sometimes I fail to live out the things that I know. 
Sometimes I feel like there's an, 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 an angel on my right shoulder and a demon on my left shoulder, and they are pulling me in opposite directions. And sometimes I want to listen to the demon. Sometimes I'm looking for a reason to fail. Sometimes people bring trials into my life, and instead of loving my enemies like Jesus says, I want to give them a piece of my mind. And it's always the bad piece. <laughs> Sometimes things, people do things to me, and I know what the right thing to do is, but it feels so good to do the wrong thing. And I know Jesus is going to forgive me, and so I, so I fail. Maybe that's just me. I know you all always make the right decisions. You always follow what the Lord tells you. You always endure through the trials. But I'm a sinner, and I fall short. Sometimes I have financial challenges, and I'm tempted to doubt God's promises and to try to figure these things out on my own. Sometimes people cut me off in traffic, and I'm tempted to forget everything that I have taught you about having a profane heart. I'm tempted, tempted. I don't, I may think it, but it doesn't come out my mouth. <laughs> I don't want to kind of put anyone on the spot. But sometimes when life happens to you, I know like me, you all get discouraged. Sometimes you think about throwing in the towel. Sometimes, like me, you feel like putting Jesus on pause for a moment and just sinning sometimes. Not all the time. Just sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you feel like God has put you in an impossible situation and sinning is either the only way out or sin is the easy way out. And today, if that is you, and it is all of us, if we would be honest, right, sometimes all of us feel that, that just sinning is the, is the easiest and the fastest way out. If that is you, then James chapter 2, I'm um, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, has something to say to us. Listen to it one more time. James says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, when he has passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The first thing I want us to look at here uh, is in verse 12. And I want us to see 
that the person who endures temptation is blessed. Now, I had someone uh, ask me this question last week. They said, well, wait a minute. If temptation is, is a bad thing, why is the person who endures temptation blessed? Okay. I believe that what we see here is a summary statement by James. James is summarizing in verse 12 everything that he has said in verses 2 through 11. We know that because if you will look, just quickly look in uh, these, uh, in verse 12, you see three words repeated in verse 12 that James repeats in verses 2 and 3. Look in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will see the crown of life. Notice first the word temptation, right? Remember, I said in verse 2, the word trials, and in verse 12, the word temptation is the same exact word in Greek, the word parasmos, okay? So he repeats this word. Number two, the word endures in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures. When you look at verse uh, 2 and 3, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. Okay, so the word patience and the word endures, right? These are the same words. Okay. Lastly, in verse 12, the word approved, right? Blessed the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. Okay. Same thing. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith, the word testing and the word approved, same words. Okay. So James is bringing this idea, all of these ideas from verses 2 through 11, he's bringing it into verse 12 and giving us a summary statement. He's summing up all of the things that he has talked about in verses 2 through 11. Does everyone see that? In verse 3, James says that the purpose of trials is to test our faith so that we can learn to endure. As a matter of fact, Endurance is one of the most important and it is one of the most referenced and talked about Christian characteristics. This is what God is up to in our lives. He's trying to teach us how to endure. Okay. Now, I could give us uh, multiple references about this endurance and how is it, it is important and why it is important for us as Christians to, to build endurance in our lives. But I want to just look at three verses really quickly, three passages um, that helps us to understand what the Bible says about Christian endurance. First, I want you to turn to James chapter 5. <coughs> James chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Endurance is something that we all need in the Christian life. Is everyone there? Verse 7 starts, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. 
you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Okay? Be patient. Endure. Okay? Be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience, as an example of suffering and endurance. Indeed, we count them blessed who what? Endure. You have need of perseverance or endurance, right? I'm sorry. Wait. You have heard. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about another passage we're going to. You have heard <laughs> of the perseverance of Job and seen what? The end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We could read verse 12 um, as well. Well, I'll read it. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now, listen to what he says. He's telling them why they need to endure, why they need perseverance. He says, of, of course, we count those who endure, who are able to, to stand the test of time in faith, even when they suffer, we count those people blessed. And then he gives us the example of Job. He says, you have heard of the endurance or the perseverance of Job. Job lost everything he possessed. He lost his children. His wife then comes to him and says, curse God and die. <laughs> right? My God. Right? After going through all of that, your wife just says, come on, man, I need the life insurance money. Okay? Then after all of that, your best friends come to you and they nag you day in and day out. You had to do something wrong. God is punishing you. You must be a sinner. God wouldn't do this to you if you were doing great things. And I'm sure he was tempted to give up. But he says, you have heard of the perseverance of Job. And because Job endured, we what? We got to see the end or the purpose intended by the Lord. Because Job endured and went through his pain and suffering and he did not give up on the Lord, he received the promise. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. One book to the left. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll begin reading verse 1. He says, therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with what? Patience or endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It doesn't matter. Each one of us has been given a different race. All of us are running a different path. All of us have been given different circumstances. All of us have been given different struggles. But whatever struggle you have been given in your race, run with endurance. 
let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus being able to see the glory that he will receive, he was able to go through the cross and not run from it, okay? He was able to endure the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You see, that's what we're up against. We're up against weariness and discouragement. And the one thing that will help you to get overcome weariness and discouragement in the Christian life is endurance, perseverance, patience, long-suffering. Last one, Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 36. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 36. It reads, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you what? Endured a great struggle with suffering. Partly while you, you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted, accepted the plunderings of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast off your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. Don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward, because you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Don't throw away your confidence. You have need of endurance. You need perseverance. You need patience. You need stamina. You need fortitude. You need to be able to run the race for a long time. And then after you have done the will of God, you will receive the promise. You see, endurance is about being focused on the end game. Too often we in the Christian life, the reason that we struggle, the reason that we fall away, the reason that we run so much is because we want our best life now. Right? I was thinking about this the other day. Um, that song, um, Living My Best Life, right? Uh, you know what I was thinking? I said, you know what? I should rename, right? <laughs> I, ain't I ain't going back and forth with you Christians. It's like, no, I'm playing. <laughs> um, I was thinking, you know what? I should rename this chapter instead of how to handle trials and how to handle temptation. I should rename this why are Christians thinking that they need to live their best life is why most of us fail.
We always run around. I'm living my best life, right? So when adversity comes, that's not God's will for me. God wants the best for me. I remember talking to someone. They were going through something, and God just wants me to be happy. I'm like, what? I had to get my concordance out, and I said, huh? You got a scripture for that? God doesn't want you to be happy as much as he wants you to be holy. God is not calling us to live our best life now. Somebody might have got a $20 million book deal for it, but it ain't true. Jesus says, in this life, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You're going to suffer. You're going to have pain. You're going to have troubles. But you need to be able to endure. Now, we don't know how long you have to endure. We don't know how, how long the Lord is going to take to deliver us. But there's some things he may not deliver us from. But we all have need of endurance because after we have done the will of God, we will receive the promise. We all need endurance in the Christian life. As I have said during my message on verses, two through, on verses 2 through 8, endurance is one of the main things God is trying to work in our lives. We have a tendency to want everything to be easy. And when things aren't easy, we have a tendency to run away. We run from marriages when they get hard. We run from jobs when they get hard. We run from our children when things get hard. We run from our friends when things get hard. We are constantly running. We run from church when things get hard. Oh, they hurt my feelings. I'm going to the church down the street. Then they hurt your feelings, and now you're at the church across town. <laughs> we run from jobs, we run from friendships, and the list can go on and on and on. But the Christian life is about warfare. See, the thing that we are missing when we're thinking, ooh, I'm living my best life, is that we forget that we're in the middle of a war. And there's nobody that's neutral in the middle of a war. You can think you get, you're neutral in the middle of a war, but civilians get shot too. <laughs> but you're not a civilian. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that all of us have been enlisted in the army of the Lord. And it is our responsibility to not get entangled with the things of this life so that we can please the one who has enlisted us in his army. The Christian life is about warfare. And God needs soldiers that know how to fight. <laughs> I know some people got the spiritual gift of fighting, boy, I tell you. <laughs> right he needs people who know how to fight god needs soldiers who are strong enough to fight for their marriages 
who are strong enough to fight for their children, who are strong enough to fight for their churches, and who are strong enough to fight to further the gospel. And the truth is that if you're going to fight, you will need endurance. I remember when I first started um, taking my uh, martial arts classes and um, uh, the Shihan Vieta, um, he would make us, before we would start any class, he would make us do 45 minutes of exercises. It was the worst. <laughs> I mean, it's not, you know, like it's, he didn't make us just stretch. And I mean, literally, we would literally have to do um, sit-ups, crunches. I mean, I mean, he was, I'm thinking, okay, how many are we going to do, like 10? <laughs> right? No, 50 of every single set. And by the end, I'm like, oh, my stomach, I can't. Okay, so 45 minutes of all of this exercise, okay, and then I'm like, whew, great, it's all over. Then he was like, okay, I'm going to give you two minutes break, and then he would make us do cartwheels back and forth, down and back throughout the dojo four times. Then after that, you can't breathe. He would make us do fireman crawls all the way around the dojo twice. Then after that, he would let you get a sip of water. And then you would have to sit Caesar, right, in a seated bow. And he would make us practice holding our breath for 16 seconds. I can't breathe in the first place, <laughs> right? But I have to practice holding my breath. Now, what was he doing with all of these exercises? Number one, the reason he would start each, each class off with 45 minutes of exercise is because he would teach that when two people are fighting, if all things are equal, the person who gets winded first will lose. It's kind of hard to fight if you can't breathe, okay? <laughs> So he was teaching us endurance. If you want to be able to overcome an attacker, you have to be able to outlast that attacker. Second, he would make us do the cartwheels and then the fireman crawls. I mean, those things, are, I was about to quit, man. I don't need to learn martial arts, <laughs> right? The second reason he made us do the fireman crawls was because most people who die in house fires die because they cannot crawl 20 feet on their belly. You can't stand up and walk through a smoke-filled house. You have to crawl. You have to be able to do the fireman crawl. Most people cannot drag themselves 20 feet on their belly. They don't have the endurance. Lastly, he would make us practice holding our breath for 16 seconds because the average person being choked passes out in less than eight seconds. So he's teaching us to double that so that we can have the, ability, the, 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 the mental awareness to be able to do whatever technique to try to get them off from, from choking us. Okay. He was teaching us endurance. It was painful, but it taught us endurance.
if endurance is important in self-defense, how much more important is it in the Christian life when we are dealing with spiritual and eternal realities? James says that the person who endures adversity is blessed. That is, this person experiences the favor of God. Now, <clears throat> he goes on to tell us why this person um, who endures is temptation is blessed. James says, blessed is the man, and it is generic, anyone who uh, endures temptation is blessed. Because what? When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Now, there's a lot of debate about um, what this crown of life is. Okay, Some people um, uh, debate that the, this crown of life is an actual crown, right? That we as Christians will receive a physical crown. Some people believe that it's just symbolic, right, of life itself. And um, it's, it's possible, right? This word crown of life, um, the word of is a genitive of apposition, meaning that, that the two words are, um, are equated. So the crown that is life is a possible translation. Um, um, so it could be a physical crown. It could be um, just the fact that we receive eternal life. <coughs> Some people wonder, is this a present reality? Is it something that we see receive right now when we pass the test? Or is it talking about um, the future reward that re we receive in heaven? Okay, I'm not going to get us into the weeds because that would take the rest of my time. All right. Um, but what I will say is, um, first of all, there's not enough evidence in the Bible to conclude one way or another whether or not we will receive a crown. Okay, We may receive physical, uh, physical crowns. We may not. But guess what? I don't personally care as long as I'm not in hell. Okay, <laughs> that, That's just my take on it. Okay, right? I could cut the, all of the commentary explanation down to I'm not in hell. All right. um, the second thing I would say is um, that ultimately, even if we do receive a physical crown, it is still a symbol of our eternal life, the Zoe life, right? That, that God is presenting unto us. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter if it's a physical crown or not. I think that what we will have to say is that whatever this is, James is speaking at eschatologically, meaning he's talking about the reward that we receive in heaven. And I take that from Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, where Jesus says the same thing to um, this persecuted church. Right. He says that they are going to suffer the same context that James is talking about. He says they're going to suffer and he tells them to be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. So whatever is being referred to, it is something that we all receive when we get to heaven. However, Jesus does say in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says that I have come that you may have life, same word, Zoe, and that you may have it more abundantly. So my take on all of this is that James is talking about the reward that we receive in heaven. However, when we pass the test, when we are tested and approved, the reward 
that we receive in heaven is given to us in advance today. That all of the benefits of this eternal life that we will experience in heaven, we get to experience the benefit of this Zoe life now whenever we endure, whenever we pass the test. You see that? And I think that that is the most accurate way to describe what James is saying. Um, there's some commentators who, who agree with my position. There's some people who disagree. But I think that, that the point still is, is that the reward is given to us in the future, but we also experience it partially right now. Okay. We won't get this full benefit until we reach heaven, but we experience part of it right now. Now, this all sounds great, right? All the things I've described. If we endure temptation, whatever the temptation may be, I mean, I'm sorry, if we endure trials or adversity, right, whatever that trial or adversity is, right, we receive this benefit. The question becomes, what happens when we fail? What about the times when we don't endure? What about the times when we fail to be obedient to God? It would be great if every single time we experienced uh, adversity, we endured and persevered, but that's not what happens. Again, sometimes we take the easy way out. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We all fail. The question we have to answer for ourselves is why do we fail? When you go through trials or adversity, you have the ability to endure. Jesus has died to set you free from uh, sin and death. He's given his spirit to be inside of you, to empower you to do all of the things that he has created you, um, um, wants you to do. But why do we fail? Why do we fall short? I think that James spends the next three verses explaining this to us. And I think that um, one of the reasons that we as Christians, we are not more successful when we are tempted to sin is because we don't spend enough time meditating on these four verses. If we spent more time meditating on these verses, I believe that we would have more success when it came time for us to be tempted. <clears throat> Listen to what James says. I'm going to take this very slow. I probably will only finish um, down to verse 13, and the next week I'll come back and do verses 14 and 15. But listen to what he says here. Very slow, phrase by phrase, he says, let no one say when he is tempted. Notice he's transitioning from this idea of just trials and adversity. He's moving into when we fail, it becomes a temptation. Remember I said that if this, the stimulus for us, uh, for our adversity, originates outside of us, then it is simply a trial. It is simply a test. But there's two more scenarios. What about when 
the external stimulus interacts with our internal desires for the good life. <laughs> what about when the stimulus st starts inside of us, right? Because you, you don't have to have tr adversity in order to sin. Sometimes our imagination is just enough. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. He's moving away from just the trials and adversities that are external, and he's starting to look inside of each one of us. Let no one say when he is tempted. He's moving away from the broader understanding of testing and adversity to the more specific understanding of the word parasmos, which is temptation or solicitation to sin. When you are solicited to sin, don't say God has anything to do with it. The first reason we fall prey to temptation is because we are not willing to take personal responsibility. We always are looking for someone else to place the blame on. This is rampant in our society. We blame stress at work and at home. Uh, for our drinking problems, we blame traffic for while we're frequently late instead of just saying I overslept. Okay. <laughs> um, we blame our absentee fathers, our overbearing mothers, being born the wrong race, gender, or social economic status, and sadly, sometimes we even blame God. If I had, if God had just answered my prayers, I wouldn't be in this mess. God created me with these desires. <laughs> okay. What about, why didn't God make me rich, smarter, taller, fill in the blank? Okay. All of these statements place the responsibility with God. It is the same thing that Adam did, right? Remember, Adam eats from this fruit. God appears to him, Adam, why did you do this? What did Adam say? The woman you gave me. <laughs> the woman you gave me. She gave to me and I ate. So in other words, God, don't look at me. God, this is your fault. If you had given me a better spouse. Let me say that again. God, if you had given me a better spouse, I wouldn't be in this mess. Placing the blame on God. God, it's your fault. You did this. The woman you gave me, the husband you gave me. <laughs> <laughs> No, my friend who is an, an atheist, we've had this conversation back and forth, and, and, and he believes that it's God's fault, okay? And, and, and it goes, he, he, his, his argument goes like this. Did God know what Adam was going to do? The answer is yes. Did God have the power to stop Adam? The answer is yes. Did God stop Adam? No. So it's God's fault. Because 
God, why would God create someone knowing that he was going to do this? And then he had the power to stop him, but he didn't. God set Adam up. That's his argument. Okay. So he blames God for Adam sinning. Very subtle. But he blames God for Adam sinning simply because God did not intervene in stopping Adam. What he fails to realize is that God does not override our free will, right? God had absolutely nothing to do with Adam sinning. God tested Adam because he wanted to see if Adam was going to be obedient or not. He created Adam in such a way that he could pass the test. He desired Adam to pass the test. He was actually free to pass the test. But Adam chose sin versus eternal life. And God had absolutely nothing to do with that. God designed the test in a way that would have confirmed Adam in this holiness that he had, this, this righteousness, original righteousness that he had, and he would have been confirmed in eternal life, but he chose wrong, and that is not God's fault. It's easy to shift the blame on God, and we do it in very subtle ways. James says when we are tempted, we should not say we are tempted by God. Now, what's interesting here in this, this uh, prepositional phrase, by God, is that there's two words that can be used to explain, uh, um, be translated by. The first word is hupa, right? And that means that God is the direct agent. He is directly soliciting me to sin. Okay. I don't know too many Christians that would say God is intentionally directing, direct, is directly responsible to solicit me for sin. Nobody really says that. So the second word, the word that is actually used here is apa, right? And the idea is to be a remote agent, right? God is not directly trying to get me to sin, but he may have set the circumstances. He's put me in a circumstance where I have no other choice but to choose sin. Okay. James says, let no one say that God is even remotely responsible for our temptations and why we sin. God has absolutely nothing to do with our temptation or sin at all all. I remember a time when I had to exercise church discipline on someone who was involved in uh, rampant sexual immorality, right? And I remember talking to this guy and, and um, he would talk about all of the struggles and things that he uh, had been through in life. And this is why he was making the decisions that he was making now. And after talking to this person, you know, and kind of nailing them down with, you know, these things don't make sense, catching them in lies, things like that. Um, he just got frustrated and yelled at me. <laughs> he says, look, I have needs and nobody is going to make me feel bad about how I get my needs met. 
Now, notice how subtle what he said is the problem. The problem is not, I keep choosing to be involved in sexual immorality. It's God's fault. I have needs. Where did those needs come from? They were given to me, right? And since they were given to me, right, I'm not wrong for having these needs fulfilled. See, that's the subtle way of how we put it on God. If God didn't give me these desires, I would be fine. This person is saying that God has created him in such a way that he has to respond the way that he is responding. And that's not true. In contrast to this point, James gives two reasons why this cannot be true, why God cannot be charged directly or indirectly when we are tempted to sin. Listen to what he says. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God for because, number one, God cannot be tempted by evil. Number two, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by sin and he himself tempts no one. I'm going to finish this section up and then next week we'll come back and look at verses 14 and 15. The first reason that James gives for why we cannot blame God for tempting us is related to his nature. And the second reason that he gives for why we cannot blame God when we're tempted is related to his character, his nature and his character. First, he says, God cannot be tempted by evil. Evil has no allure or attraction to God. God does not desire evil or sin in any kind of way. As a matter of fact, the Bible names many characteristics concerning God's nature and character, what we call attributes. God is said to be love. God is said to be gracious and merciful and compassionate. But the Bible also says that God is holy. When the Bible says that God is holy, it means that he is set apart from us, that he is completely not like us in any way. Right. But it also means that he is pure. He's righteous and he is good. Now, I know that today people will argue that um, that God is love. Because God is love, we're free to do whatever we want. However, that's not, that is not the characteristic that the Bible highlights the most about God. The characteristic that the Bible character, um, um, highlights the most about God is his holiness. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3 says that God is holy, holy, holy. Okay. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 says that God is holy, holy, holy. Guess what the Bible never says? 
It never says that God is love, love, love. It never says that God is grace, 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 or mercy, 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 right? But it says that he is holy, holy, holy. God is not just holy. God is holy, holy. He's not just holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. He is trying to emphasize for us how, how pure God is, how righteous God is, how good God is. He is holy, holy, holy. And if there's any attribute that you want to highlight for God, don't highlight his love. Highlight his holiness. Because he will love you and allow you to sin. But in his holiness, he will still punish you for that sin. I want us to look at three passages of Scripture, and then I'm going to be done. Because what I think is we don't tend to, as Christians, because we are interested in living our best life, <laughs> we lose sight of the fact that God is holy. We think that Jesus is our homeboy that God is our friend. We think that God sits up in heaven and he winks at our sin, and he does not. God is so holy, Habakkuk says, chapter 1, verse 13. You don't have to turn there. God is so holy, he can't even look at sin. Can't even look at it. Even when Jesus became sin for us, his father had to turn his back on him because he's so holy he can't even look at sin. Even when his son became sin for us, he had to turn his back on his own son. Job chapter 15 verse 15 says that even the heavens are not pure in his sight. God created heaven, right? The, the, the universe that we have, but even heaven where he dwells, streets of gold, completely pure. But even heaven itself is not pure enough for God to dwell in. God has to condescend himself just to live in heaven. He is so pure and righteous and good. But I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, I want us to see how serious God is about his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, his goodness. Leviticus chapter 10. Many of us already know this story, right? It's the story of Nadab and Abihu. They were sons of Aaron. They were also priests. Verse 1 reads, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. 
which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the presence of the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Now, get a glimpse of what's happening here. Okay. Imagine we're in the temple. This is the ark. Okay. These are priests and they are allowed to come before God's presence and offer incense to him. Okay. One night, okay, we would look, um, look back. One night they get drunk. And they just stumble on into the stumble on into the into the temple. <laughs> Let's burn some incense to the Lord. And they come before his presence and they burn incense in a way that God has not um, demanded, commanded of them. And what does God say? Oh, you know, I'm so loving. Don't don't even worry about it, man. It said immediately fire proceeded out from the ark, burned them up, and they died right there before the Lord. And then, because they were Aaron's sons, God commanded Aaron, when you go out before the people, you better not cry. Because everybody who comes before me better regard me as holy. Are we that serious about God's holiness? Are we that serious about sin? Are we that serious when we come in God's presence and we we play, we live in sin, and then we come on Sunday morning? I look good, everything's fine, nobody knows. God said to the nation of Israel, and he says to the church, be holy because I am holy. God is so holy, he has no desire for sin. He has no inclinations towards sin. He has no purposes for sin at all. So James says that in his nature, God can't be tempted by sin. He has no need of sin. He cannot be enticed by sin. So therefore, when we are solicited to sin, God is not our enemy. He's an ally. When God tests you or allows adversity to come into your life, it's not because he wants you to fail. He wants you to succeed because that's who he is. He's a loving father, and he wants you to pass the test. God has provided every single thing that you need to pass the test. He died and set you free from sin, like I said. He put his Holy Spirit inside of you. He's giving you spiritual gifts. He's giving you every single thing to succeed. The only thing that we have to do is this. 
Now, it's funny. We love to use this verse, right? We use the verse when we need to pass a test um, at school, when we start in a business, <laughs> right? We never apply this mindset when it comes to our sin. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When, when I have a big exam, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I want to start a business, I can do all things who, through Christ who strengthens me. Love your enemies. No, I can't do that. <laughs> I, no, man. God know my heart. He know I'm a sinner. Mm-mm-mm. Right? Love your spouse, even though they aren't doing anything you want. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm, no, I'm tired of that. God, God just want me to be happy. <laughs> Where's the I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? What I'm trying to leave us with here is simply... When we are solicited to sin, God is not involved. God provides the test so that we can be approved, so that we can pass the test, right? But when we fail, God has nothing to do with it. I'm going to read these last two verses. I'm going to stop him. I'm going to pick this back up next week. Because James doesn't just leave it with, okay, well, God is not at fault, okay? Um, I could have added in a whole bunch of stuff. The devil made me do it. Okay. <laughs> right, we, we love to put the blame on, on someone, just like Eve did. Okay, The woman you gave me, Eve, why did you do this? The serpent. It's like we just keep passing. The serpent was probably like, <laughs> I don't got nobody else to look at. <laughs> but listen to what James says. We're going to pick this back up next week. He says, verse 14, But each one is tempted, each one is solicited to sin, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Don't say God had anything to do with it. When you feel the, the, the tug to go into sin, it's because of your own desires. Now, again, we keep thinking about this only in terms of sexual desire, but the word desire, it can be used of, of that, but it's talking about any desire that God has, um, that we have, right? He says, you are drawn away. The word is a, it's a hunting word, right? How, we hunt, how you, you set a trap for, for an animal. And we are enticed. The idea is to bait a hook, like dangle it before a worm. Okay. And so this is what our desires do to us. They bait us and hook us and then drag us away. <laughs> and so the question is, how do we get control of our desires so that we can pass the test when we are tempted? And we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us again to come into your presence, even though we are not holy like you are. You are gracious and compassionate and merciful and forgiving, and therefore you allow us to come before you even though 
we do disobey you at times and that is because of your grace and mercy and we thank you for that but lord i pray that you would help us to see that we don't have to live in our sin you have truly set us free from the law of sin and death so that when we are tempted we can endure we don't have to give in Because of the weakness of our flesh, we will never be 100% perfect. And so we have to not only receive grace from you, we have to also give grace to one another. But Lord, we can all do better. Help us to see that you are not our enemy. You have not set us up to fail, but you have set us up to be tested so that we can succeed and receive the promise but we have to endure. I pray, God, that you would help us to stop running from every trial and every adversity. Help us to see that these trials and adversities are designed to strengthen us and to build us up and to teach us stamina and fortitude so that we can be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Able to fight for our families and children and churches and even for our country lord because the enemy desires to destroy those people who don't know you and we have to be the ones to stand in the way to proclaim the gospel to them we ask lord that you would help us that when the trial comes that you would work in us so that we are not led away by our own sinful desires led away from Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in us. We know that you have promised that you will work on us until the day of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to yield to you and cooperate with you in this sanctification process so that we can look more and more like your son. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.